The Glory Center would like to welcome you to this podcast. We hope that this teaching will encourage and minister to you. And now, the message. Okay, shall we? Let's get into work. How's it going to sound? Um, last week we finished with, we finished with, finished with Revelation 13, and I want to just recap a couple of things there just to get our minds moving in this direction. Thank you, Lord. Um, so we, so well, I guess I could just, uh, get this up here. Just at the very end here of Revelation 13. And you know, I can't uh, review everything, you know, every week, so I just have to uh, do what I can here. Um, Pick up where we left off and because I know people aren't here every week and all that, which, you know, having the messages online can help you, you know, catch something if you missed it there or whatever. Uh, but we had looked at, you know, Revelation 13 last week and uh, near the end of the chapter here, and I'll eventually get there. Here we go. <clears throat> we looked at the beasts. You have the sea beast and the land beast and the sea beast, of course, the seven heads and the ten horns. That was Rome. Uh, ancient Rome in the first century. Of course, Rome is the city on seven hills. And you'll see later on in the book of Revelation where it pretty much says that, the, the seven mountains or the seven hills. Um, and then you, you have, and the sea very often, of course, speaks of the Gentiles. And that's very prominent in the book of Revelation. You see lots of things concerning the sea. You, in Revelation 4, you have the sea of glass before the throne of God. And then later on in Revelation, you have no more sea, uh, it says, which that means... In Christ Jesus, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, only the new creation, right? And so uh, we see those things, the land beast and the sea beast, and which the sea beast, again, Rome at that time, the, the world-dominant, uh, oppressive world empire, and then you have the land beast, which was apostate Israel, first century apostate Israel, okay? So we went through all of that. And then here in verse 16, it says, He causes all the small and the great, the rich, the poor, free the slaves, Revelation 13, 16, to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. And of course, this isn't a chip. It's not a barcode. It's not a credit card. It's not a smartphone. It's nothing like that. Uh, We've looked at several places throughout the scriptures. You go back to the book of Ezekiel. And in the book of Ezekiel, the Lord told the angel, go through and mark all the faithful on their forehead before you destroy the city. So he put a mark on them. And then you have Cain, way back in Genesis. He, uh, Cain and Abel. And then, he, you know, Lord, if I uh, go out, you know, if I go out, people are going to kill me. And it says the Lord marked him. And we don't know what it was, but something about said, you know, da, 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 can't touch this, you know, so... <laughs> I'm sorry, you're welcome. <laughs> you know. uh, Hammer's a believer. He's a Christian. Yeah, so that was anointed. Now, 
<laughs> so you have marks. And even we're about to see in the next chapter, and actually other places, like in Revelation 7, where the 144,000 are first mentioned, which is the Jewish remnant of believers in the first century, God marked them. Here in the next chapter, it's going to be marked again. So this mark isn't anything new to Scripture. It's not some 21st century uh, modern technological thing. It's a very common theme throughout all of Scripture, going as far back as Genesis with Cain and Abel. Now, so they have this mark, and, and there are different sort of ideas about what this would uh, mean specifically. Now, we know from church history several things. Um, like we know in the first century, there was something called the Agora, the Roman Agora. Just Google it, you know. It's just the marketplace. But when you would come into the marketplace, it got to where, see, it didn't start out this way, but as the oppression increased, because the Romans were always fearful of the next insurrection, the next, next uprising, the next fire they have to put out, you know, the next revolt against them by the people they've oppressed. Uh, they were always worried about that type of thing. And so it got to where it was more and more oppressive, more and more uh, oppressive, more and more oppressive. And so it got to where at the Roman Agora, when you would come to the entry place of the Roman Agora, uh, they had incense. And then I forget, I don't know what the exact wording was, but you would have to say something about Caesar is Lord. And when you would do that, uh, they would take the ash of the incense and they would mark it on your hand or on your head. And that way, when you go stand in front of someone's booth or someone's thing, they could see, oh, they got the mark. So I'm legally allowed to sell to them or barter with them or that type of thing. Otherwise, you couldn't. And so uh, we've touched quite a bit on that. And there's, you know, there's other sort of, it, it, you know, it might be both. It might be that and this sort of spiritual application because you get to the hand and to the head. That's how you think and what you believe and your hand, your, what you're about, your business, what you're doing. You know, you're subjective and, and submitted to that false system, all right, instead of Jesus, instead of him and his kingdom and his system. Um, also, you can even think about the coins, you know, in the first century, the Roman coins. Remember when they tried to tempt Jesus, you know, about the taxes and the money and all that? And he said, whose image is on that coin? Caesar. Give to Caesar what is his. So you could have that application. And I have a picture here that's very interesting, if I can uh, get this on here for you. I don't know how this will look, so bear with me or if it'll even work. I don't know what. Is anybody back here? This is not that. Oh, there we go. Now look at this, and, and this is from a, a, a website I was on giving about the mark of the beast here. But you can see the coin there, and on the coin, on the one side is Nero's what? Face and, yeah, his head. So yeah, yes, yeah. And then on the back here, over here is Nero, uh, on the far left on the other side of the coin. And as you can see there, it's showing him distributing charity. So the hand the head on the one side and his hands distributing to the other. So however you want to look at it, I, I think any of these are a valid application, you know. Uh, I particularly think the, the Roman Agora system is very potentially the, the primary way, but that's whatever. Um, so you have that. That's a very interesting uh, thing there concerning Nero and the coins and uh, all that type of thing. And then we also went through, and, and in Revelation 13 here, uh, get to the number of his name. It says he provides uh, 
that no one will be able to buy, sell, except the one who has the mark, either the, the name of the beast or the number of his name. Now notice there, the number of his name, right? Here is wisdom. Let him who understands calculate. Let him who understands calculate. So not, oh, nobody knows this, and, tw and then uh, 2,100 years, some guy from Europe will rise up, and then we'll know. No, John tells his first century audience, instead of just saying his name, because these letters are being distributed we, all throughout the world, and then you would get a copy, you and your congregation, and then you would make a copy and send it off to another group, and that's how the, 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 the epistles and the scriptures were distributed in the first century. Here is wisdom. Let him who understands calculate the number of the beast. For the number is that of a man, and his number is 666. So it's a numerical value. It's not just 666. That's, that's inaccurate. It's a numerical value totaling 666. Now, we looked at this last week, but once again, and very quickly, uh, hopefully this will work as well. And then uh, if you look up at the very top, if you can see that, Nehron Kaiser. Can you see that? And I'm sorry, I can't, it's not bigger, but, uh, you know, I can show it to you on my tablet if you know. But up at the top there, it says Nehron Kaiser, and then you have here the Greek version of the name, and when you transliterate it to Hebrew, the numerical value totals. So, in other words, like Roman numerals. So, in the Roman system, there aren't numbers, the letters. That's why you have Roman numerals. The letter had a numerical value. Right? And so, same thing in Hebrew and Latin uh, at that time and other places, uh, languages. So, the num numerical value for Nehron Kaiser was 666. What's very interesting, uh, and we did this last week and we can ask again, some of you right now probably have a footnote somewhere in your Bible on this verse that there are early manuscripts, the very early manuscripts, going way back to the early church. Uh, that put the number at 616. Mm. And wave at me if your Bible, if you know, for I know Orlo was nodding his head yes. Anyone have that footnote? Jason says yes. Many, all right, more hands are going up now. Uh, that's because, and then you see it down here as well, the Latin version of the name drops the whatever, so then it appears as, and then instead of Nehron, Nehro. And the transliteration in the Hebrew yields 616. All right? And so these are very logical reasons for these things. This isn't bizarre 21st century, some Muslim man who's teamed up with the Catholics and you know the Pope and the, the Muslims and the Chrislam, Christ, Christianity, Islam, they're working together and they're gonna take over everything. No, they're not. Now, it has nothing to do with very logical, clear, thought-out reasons here. Now, that's just review. Uh, I want to show you one thing here. Uh, probably about a month ago, yes, three weeks, a month ago, Ryan Knox here asked me, um, essentially is, and I've mentioned this repeatedly, uh, but the understanding of a first century fulfillment on these things was the view of the early church. And Ryan asked me something about that. So I got a couple of quotes here, and I'm going to try to put them up on the screen here. Uh, from some different figures all throughout church history. Just a couple, I just have a handful of them here, but just to show you this, some uh, quotations here. Uh, if you've ever heard of Eusebius, Eusebius is the first, he's said to be, you know, uh, he has the honor of being the very first 
church historian. So he lived during the fourth century, so the 300s AD. Uh, and Eusebius recorded uh, really some incredible things, man. You could get us a book, even at Barnes and Noble. You can get a Kindle version, whatever, man. Get Eusebius. Incredible stuff. Just church history, just awesome stuff, man. Uh, anyways, uh, now you understand, what, do you understand what I mean when I say the Olivet Discourse? The Olivet Discourse is most, what's usually used uh, is Matthew 24. Now, Mark's version of that is Mark chapter 13. Luke's version is Luke 21. But Matthew 24, for some reason, is the one that's most often used. Same thing, but, you know. Uh, John does not have an Olivet Discourse in his gospel. Uh, many people think the book of Revelation is his prophetic, apocalyptic version of the Olivet Discourse. So the Olivet Discourse, you know, when they say, Lord, what's the sign of your parousia, which means presence, arrival, coming, and the end of the age? And then Jesus tells them all these different things that are going to happen. And then in verse 34, he gives them the direct answer. Truly, I tell you, all these things will take place, all right, before this generation passes away. Now, here's Eusebius, and I hope this is, I don't know, I'll read it to you. It's not here. That's a little stretched out. But check. Now, this is Eusebius, the very first church historian. He says all of this, and he's talking about Matthew 24, all of this occurred in this manner. In the second year of the reign of Vespasian, which was in 70 AD, according to the predictions of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So Eusebius, in his book, he's talking about, this is just a, you know, a snapshot of, you know, uh, but so the very first church historian here, 263 to 359 AD, uh, says there all of this occurred uh, in the first century. Uh, another very prominent theological figure uh, who lived during the 1500s, John Calvin. Now notice this. He says, Christ informs them that before a single generation shall have been completed, Matthew 24, they will learn by experience the truth of what he said. For within 50 years, and it was 40 exactly, the city was destroyed and the temple was raised, R-A-Z-E-E. -E. The whole country was reduced to a hideous desert. Again, I'm talking about the Olivet Discourse. John Wesley, you've heard of him, the, I guess you'd call him the father of Methodistism, or Methodist something. John Wesley here, and that's probably a bit smaller here, but he says Matthew 24 was most punctually fulfilled. For after the temple was burned, Titus, the Roman general, ordered the very foundations of it to be dug up. What did Jesus say? Not one stone will be left standing. So even the very foundation stones were dug up, after which the ground, even the very ground that the temple was built on, he says, was plowed by Turnus Rufus. This generation of men, quoting Jesus now, this generation of men living shall not pass till all of these things be done. The expression implies that a great part of that generation would be passed away, but not the whole. So some would live to see you know, 
<coughs> Just so it was, for the city and the temple were destroyed within 39 or 40 years later. Charles Spurgeon, known as the Prince of Preachers, great uh, uh, in England there, uh, very renowned uh, preacher, 1834 to 1892, Charles Spurgeon said this, there was a sufficient interval for the full proclamation of the gospel by the apostles and the evangelists of the early Christian church and for the gathering of those who recognized the crucified Christ as the true Messiah. In other words, the gospel went out to the world and there was a harvest that was reaped, a gathering unto him. And that's Matthew 24, 1 Thessalonians 4, and many other places, Revelation. He says, Then came the awful end which the Savior foresaw and foretold the prospect of which wrung from his lips and heart the sorrowful lament that followed his prophecy of doom awaiting his guilty capital. The destruction of Jerusalem was more terrible than anything the world has ever witnessed, either before or since. And the biggest reason for that is because Israel, as a national people, as a nation, as a country, is the only country, nation, people group that ever had an exclusive covenant with the true and living God. But because of their apostasy and rejection of their own Messiah, the unfathom unfathomable end came upon them. And, and Jesus said that in Matthew 24, quoting the book of Daniel, chapter 12, that this will be worse than anything ever before or after. All right? And so, uh, again, Israel is the only nation to ever have an exclusive covenant with God as a natural, national people group. So, you know, and America doesn't, America, it's, America is not in covenant with God. There's no such thing as that. It's silly. Now, last one, and this is just a modern feature. So I kind of went through a scope of human history there. Any of you, have any of you heard of John Eckhart out of Chicago? You guys have, you have, Linda has, you, okay, several of you. John Eckhart uh, believes these things. He says, the book of Revelation, uh, also known as the Apocalypse. The word, the word uh, apocalyptic is often used to refer to total and universal destruction. Many believe the Revelation uh, is an apocalyptic vision of the end of the world. The revelation of Jesus Christ, so he's contrasting that faulty view, the revelation of Jesus Christ is not about the end of human history, but instead the end of covenantal history, <coughs> covenantal history and the Jewish age. So he's comparing that many people use the word apocalypse, and Hollywood has hijacked that word and makes it mean the end of the world and explosions and planes and bugs the size of Volkswagens coming up out of the sea and all sorts of catastrophes going off and nuclear solar plants going off and this, you know, just crazy stuff. And it literally doesn't mean that. It, of course, as we've drilled and beaten a dead horse and we'll kick him again, apocalypse means to reveal or to unveil or to uh, basically to show naked or bare that which was covered. All right, so that's all it means. It does not mean, I can't help that. I'm sorry. I'm sorry your favorite TV preacher said it meant the end of the world. I can't help that. It's not my fault that that's not what it means. All right? So nonetheless, it literally means to reveal or to unveil. Now, 
Are you ready? <laughs> we'll move on a little here. Here we go. Picking up in uh, Revelation here, chapter 14. So here we see verse 1, Revelation 14, verse 1. <clears throat> he says, Then I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him the 144,000. So the 144,000, we see them back in chapter, beginning in chapter 7, and these are the first fruits of the Jewish believers. All right? And of course, they were under severe persecution from not only the Romans, uh, but also, of course, from the Jewish, unbelieving Jews, unbelieving Jewish system, unbelieving Israel. Now, but notice what he says here, the 144,000, having his name and the name of his father written on their foreheads, right? So we're not going to make this, you know, some sort of chip or some sort of thing implanted in you, so we don't need to make the the number of the beast in his mark. We don't need to make that a chip or a barcode or a cell phone or a credit card or a Gorbachev or a Ronald Reagan or all the other crazy theories. And next election, we'll have another crazy theory. And it just goes on and on and on and nothing ever happens. You know, at some point, and I mentioned this last week, the, the prophecies in the scriptures have to actually apply to something. You can't, every time there's a solar eclipse, for the last 2,000 years. You can't say, oh, that's Matthew 24. It has to apply to one event at some point. You can't reapply it every single time. I wish I could say that better, but does that make sense? So, every, so the next lunar eclipse, or the next solar eclipse, or the next meteor shower, you can't always generically apply it to everything that happens every six weeks. You know, It has to mean something at some point. Rant over. Now, verse 2. And I heard a voice from heaven. Now, this is very interesting here. I heard a voice from heaven, like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of thunder, and the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. Now, this is really interesting. If you go, and I don't turn there, but even in chapter 1, when John first hears him, he said, I heard the voice of many waters uh, behind me. And you know, and I, I have found the Lord will speak to you in a way you can understand, Right? He'll speak your language to you. I've had the Lord speak to me, and the book of Job talks about this, but it was like the wind, and the voice of the Lord was in the wind. I've had the Lord speak to me. You know, a lot of people, a lot of, you know, my friends uh, over the years tell me that whenever they're spending time praying in tongues, that's when they hear God speak to them. I never, virtually never, hear God speak to me when I'm praying in the Spirit. I usually hear the Lord when I'm not expecting, or when I, when I at all, you know, I'm, you know, trying to find some good ice cream or, you know, shoot my pellet gun at a chipmunk, just whatever, driving down the road, thinking about nothing, man. You know, and God will just whew, speak to me and I'll hear him. Or when I'm reading the word, or really when I'm worshiping, that's when I get into the place of hearing the word for some reason. I don't know why. But there is no right way. It's just get to that place and hang out with him and whatever works for him, right? Uh, I'll go through seasons. I went through a season for years, man, when I would hear the word when I got the, when I took a shower. I'm telling you, heaven would open up in that shower, man. I don't know. And then that stopped. And then for years, I hear the Lord very often whenever I'm mowing the lawn. You know, I go through seasons, and I call it the sweet spot. So whatever the and I think it's good if it's not, that'll work for a season, 
But there might be other reasons why it happens. But I think it's good that it changes up because we don't want God. He can't be reduced to our formula. He can't be put in a box. And so, and and it's a romance. You, you know, in your in your relationships, you'll go through seasons. You go through a season. Maybe you watch a movie every Friday night, or maybe you'll go to the theater. Maybe every Saturday night. You, Saturday, you go and whatever. You know. I don't know, but things change, right? You go through different seasons like that. For me, it seems to happen that way with the Lord, and I think that's a, a pretty cool thing. Now, uh, John here says, though, the sound of many waters and the sound of thunder. Then he said, and the voice which I heard was like this, the, the sound of harpists playing on their harps. It was one voice, but I think, I think what's happening here is it's your own... Beauty's in the eye of the beholder. It's subjective. It's the voice changed based upon who, how you were listening. To John, his voice sounded like sweet harps playing of love. But to those who rejected the Messiah and were apostate, it sounded like voices of thunder. Can you see that? And even in the book of John, we have a place where God the Father speaks audibly out of heaven. And some said that it was thunder. Some some heard the voice of God. Some said it was, you know, so it's in the eye of the beholder, or I guess in this case, the ear of the listener. But you know what I mean. Now, which I think that's pretty cool. Um, which that, you know, that, well, look at that. Verse three. Now, this is interesting. It says, they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders and no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the land. All right? It's the Greek word again as we drill home every week. Greek word gay, and it means land. Land of Israel. But it says they sang the new song. Now this is interesting because, and don't turn there, but we'll get there eventually. Chapter 20, in Revelation chapter 20, you have those who, were, uh, who reigned with Christ for the thousand years, which is a symbolic number. It's not literal. We'll get more on that later. Um, but it says that only those who were beheaded reigned with him for the thousand years. All right? So we need to understand that. So that's so here we have the 144,000, which is those who were beheaded. It's the same group. Uh, we see here that only they sang this new song. Now this is really... Interesting again, uh, because in the book of Deuteronomy, whenever the children of Israel crossed over into the, the physical promised land, you can read Deuteronomy 32, 33, and the end of the chapter uh, 34, whenever they crossed over, you know, they sang the song of Moses, which was a new song. So they sang the song of Moses as they crossed over into the physical promised land. But here they sung, sang, sing the new song as they exit the old covenant promised land and enter into the new covenant promised land, the new heaven and earth, the new Jerusalem, the heavenly city. Am I making any sense? Okay, now, keep reading. It says, these are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they have kept themselves chaste. They are the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These have been purchased from among men as the first fruits, as we mentioned, and to the lamb. No lie was found in their mouth, they are blameless. Verse 6. Now notice this. Verse 6. I saw another angel, or the Greek word messenger. I saw another messenger in heaven, or some mid-heaven. Now stick with me here. Having the eternal gospel. Verse 6. The eternal gospel to preach to those who live 
on the earth. The, the literal translation of that uh, says those who live on the earth. The word live there is literally the word sit. I don't know what that would mean or why it matters, but it, I, it, it is. It literally says those who sit in the land. All right? They preach the gospel to, of course, talking about Israel. They preach to those who sit in the land. Now notice this, and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And if I had a little more time, I would re-go through this. But I have shared here, uh, slowly, succinctly, scriptures on the board, everything, uh, at least two different times, where in Matthew 24, Jesus said, this gospel of the kingdom must go out to the whole Oikimene, Roman Empire, then the end will come. What end? The end of the age. And I've shown multiple scriptures. Romans chapter 16, for example. Romans 16, verse, uh, I believe it's 24 and 25, uh, very clearly say that the gospel literally went to the whole world in the first century. All right, let me, I guess I say something like that. Sometimes you just got to bite the bullet and pull it up here very quickly. Look at this. Uh, let me say, are you familiar with the scripture in Matthew 24 where Jesus said this gospel of the kingdom, Matthew 24, I think 15, might be 14, I think it's 15, must go to the whole, or uh, the whole world, then the end will come. Answering their question, the end of the age, not the end of the world. But look here, just very, I have it up here for you, Romans 16. Look at this. Verse 25. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifest. And by the scriptures, according to the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations, leading to the obedience of faith. So here's one verse where Paul says the gospel went to all nations here in his lifetime. Now, that, we don't know what to do with that, but I can't help that. <laughs> Again, that's not my fault. I didn't write it. We report, you decide, right? You know. And there's other, I mean, and I'm not turning here, but Romans chapter 10, Paul said their voice went out to the whole earth. And then he, gets, he builds up to faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word. Uh, another scripture very quickly, Colossians chapter 1. Look at this. Colossians chapter 1. See, we're not sitting back still waiting on the gospel to go to the whole world. It has. But there's always more people being born, and more, so it's always having to go out, you know. Look at this. Colossians chapter 1. Paul says this, verse 5. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard the word of truth, the gospel, so this gospel of the kingdom must go to the whole Wicomene, which has come to you just as it is in all the world. Colossians 1, verse 6. The word world there is cosmos, just as it has in all the cosmos. Also constantly bearing fruit. And then he goes on and uh, they understood the grace of God in truth. So there's many scriptures, and, and these are just a couple of them that uh, clearly shows that the gospel went out in the first century. Um, but you, we've not been told that for some reason, because it doesn't fit our presuppositions, you know. So um, nonetheless, um, let's see here. 
Colossians 1, and then let me show you one last verse here, verse 23. Colossians 1, 23. Paul says, If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which you have heard, now notice this, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven. The gospel was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, am made a minister. So there's many scriptures, there's many more scriptures that clearly show the gospel went out to the whole world in the first century. And there's historical validation for that. You can go to the Eusebius, who I mentioned, talks about it. Go to Athanasius and his infamous, uh, infamous work on the incarnation of the word. I've read that little book. There's seven or eight times in that book, Athanasius, an early defender of the gospel, said that it immediately went out to the entire world, the gospel. And so that's not something we're waiting to happen. Which, let's keep sending it out, don't misunderstand me. But in other words, that specific prophetic whatever has been fulfilled, right? Mm -hmm. All right, back to Revelation. <clears throat> now, verse, <coughs> verse 7. So the gospel went out. Then he says in verse 7, And he heard with a loud voice, Fear God, give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and springs of water. And another angel, messenger, a second one followed, saying, uh, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great, or Babylon the Great is fallen. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. Talking about Israel here. Now you remember in an earlier place in the book of Revelation, uh, he calls is, uh, Jerusalem, this, and this is his John's wording. He says, the city where our Lord was slain. And he says, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt. So he said, the city where our Lord was slain, which is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt. In other words, saying that first century apostate, Messiah rejecting, Messiah murdering Israel was as perverse and vile and sick and demon-infested, and sinful, and whatever, reprobate, as Sodom, as Egypt. Ancient, you understand what I'm, the point there? And Jesus even said in Matthew chapter 12, he said to the Pharisees, he said, uh, what, what cities did he use? He used Sodom and Gomorrah. But anyways, he said, it'll be more tolerable for the land of Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. Jesus said that in Matthew 12 to the Pharisees. He said, it'll be more tolerable for, for Sodom then on the day of judgment, then for you. So we see that that allegoric, uh, whatever, used uh, off interpretation all throughout Scripture. So Babylon the Great here again is a prophetic. It's not. It's not modern day Iraq, which Babylon is Iraq. It's not only some Iraq. He's talking about. He's saying that again, as he has in other places here, that Israel is vile and whatever, as ancient Babylon, uh, you know, who at that time conquered the world and took the people of God captive and all that stuff. Anyways, now, uh, she, who has made the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality? Another angel, uh, a third one followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and his image and receives the mark on his forehead or his hand, he also will drink the wine, verse 10, of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. Now, this is really... Interesting here. Notice this. And he will, verse 10, and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone 
in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Now, the word fire there is the Greek word. Uh, it's just like where we get our word pyro. It looks like, in the transliteration, it looks like pyre, P-Y-R, all right? The word brims, brimstone is the Greek word theos. You know what theos is? God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was theos, and the word was with theos. The word God. Theology, theology, logi, logic, study of, or knowledge of, theos, God, right? So they will be tormented with fire and God in the presence of the holy angels. Now that's a trip. Now you do your own study on that. Let me know when you get more on it. You know what I'm saying? But but it, but it validates it because it goes on to say in the presence of the Lamb and the holy angels. Now, they, have any of you ever heard of the Orthodox Church or the Eastern Orthodox Church? Yeah, they're the second largest group in the world. The first largest group of Christians in the world are Roman Catholics. The second uh, is the Orthodox or the Eastern Orthodox. All right, and we Pentecostals and Charismatics are catching up. There's an estimated 500 million of us worldwide. Now, the Eastern Orthodox view of hell is much different uh, than the Western interpretation and view of hell, right? Uh, the Eastern Orthodox to this day and all throughout their history, which goes way, 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 way back, um, they believe that hell, how do I say it the right way, is... It's not like God's like poking you and throwing you back into the fire, or even necessarily that he's letting devils and demons poke you with. Their view of hell is, if you remember a minute ago the scripture where it said, we, I touched on it for just a moment, John heard the voice of many running waters, but it also sounded like thunder. It also sounded like harps. It, it, was, it sounded like what it sounded like according to the subjective hearer, all right? They believe, the Orthodox, their view of hell is that all the, the, every physical, natural, fallen, carnal thing in this world, and even as Christians, we understand we're constantly renewing to God, being renewed, and we have all of God, but we're growing in that. You understand that? They, but, you know, one day we're going to step out of this body and the veil will be removed. Well, they believe it's the same thing for unbelievers in hell, that even now in this world, they don't want the love of God. They reject God, they hate God, or don't believe in God, or want nothing to do with God, or they're angry. Body, and, you know, whatever, however you want to say it, and I, don't, I don't like to, whatever, but they're, maybe they're on the down, the going down elevator, and that all the veil of this world that blocks them from the love of God is removed. And we're, if I, this is not, just let me say it this way, right? You guys are in this room, I'm God. You're on the good side. Sorry, Ryan, Ohio State. You're on the bad side, right? <laughs> so I could stand right here and release and lavish in whatever capacity, you know, some sort of whatever, the same love on all of you. You guys realize that I'm God. I'm, you know, I'm the truth and I'm the right way. Well, I know, Kathy, I'm sorry. And all of that. And you respond to that love from a positive posture and it gives you life and satisfaction and fulfillment and peace, etc. I'm pouring the same love out on this group, but they 
On this earth, you, you responded properly to my love. But there's still a renewal process because we're still in this fallen world and fallen thinking and fallen influences, etc. Same thing over here. They step out of their body and everything that used to block them from hating God is removed. And now they hate God even more and respond more negatively to his love. Does that make sense what I'm trying to say? For some of you. The same love that you respond to positively here, you will do so in heaven one day with no veil. The same love that they respond to negatively here, all the veil will be removed and they will have full negative response and hate. So the love that comforts you torments them. And then one day there's no veil, you'll receive it more. They'll hate it and reject it more. It'll, it'll bless you more. It'll torment them more. I'm not saying that's accurate. I'm just saying that's a view. And even if you go back to Daniel chapter 7, it says a river of fire flows out from his throne. That's the same fire that heats and warms and comforts and gives life to some, torments, burns, etc. others. And I think that's it. And we all see in this life, we've all probably met people, and perhaps some of you have been there, where at different times in your life you hate God. Why did he let this happen? Why did this But his love never changes. It's our posture and response to that love based upon how we think and believe. That's just food for thought. Now, next verse. I'm, I at least want to finish this chapter. It says, The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, or eon upon eon, age upon age. They have no rest day or night. Those who worship the beast and his image and whoever received the mark of his name. And herein is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandment of God and their faith in Jesus. Their perseverance was even in persecution. They refused to yield to the beast, either one, the land beast or the sea beast, and to the, the fallen system. And they stayed faithful to the land and his system, even if it cost their life. In other words, their lives. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, right, blessed are the dead. Now notice this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors and from their, and their deeds will follow them. And man, oh man, this is incredible stuff. Blessed are those who die in the Lord from now on. Because now they can rest. Well, there was a time when, when the saints of God died or stepped out of their body. They went to a place, a very nice hotel, but it wasn't exactly the Taj Mahal or whatever it's called. You know, they went to a good place. They may have liked Michigan. That's a good team, but they weren't liking the Florida Gators yet, the best team. So it wasn't bad like Ohio State, but it was good like Michigan. Michigan's good, but it's no Florida Gators. So it's you get the you know. So they went to Abraham's bosom. It was good. It was fine, but they still weren't regenerate. Ryan, how long have you had to put up with stuff like this? <laughs> well, when he wins so much. Oh, my gosh. Uh, about five losses or so in the last five years. You're talking old covenant as opposed to new covenant, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that transition there. And more on that in just a moment. Well, if that's not bad enough, he's a Dolphins fan. In the NFL. So. Even Zemiah. Even Zemiah. Keeps him humble. <laughs> Brittany's always there to support him. Mm -hmm. The veil still lives. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's true. Now, um, at, there was the time when you died, you went to Abraham's bosom. 
Right? We understand that? Now, Hebrews chapter 9, and I'm not turning there, and I wish we had more time, or I would, but Hebrews 9 says that the heavenly tabernacle, because we know there's a heavenly temple, because we know when Moses went up on the mountain, the Lord told him, make the earthly tabernacle after the pattern of the heavenly tabernacle that I showed you on the mountain. So we know there was both. Hebrews 9 says, the way into the heavenly tabernacle cannot be opened while the earthly tabernacle still stands. All right? So, in other words, once the temple was destroyed, and this goes back to Daniel chapter 12, you see the same thing. Everybody still went to Abraham's bosom. But once the temple was destroyed, the way into the true holy place was opened. And then all the Old Covenant saints, Old Testament saints of all past ages, the way into the heavenly place was opened. So now you don't die and go to Abraham's bosom. Now we die and we go to heaven. And 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 talks about this and many places talk about this. It's uh, uh, particularly Daniel 12 kind of gets into it. Hebrews 9 gets into it. Uh, and then 1 Thessalonians 4 is a, is a great exposition into it. And we might get more into that a little bit later. But the good news for us is, you know, when we step out of our body, we go to heaven. So we don't go to the nice holding tank anymore. You know, we don't. We go to the good place. So, now, then I looked and behold a white cloud, and sitting on the cloud was one like the Son of Man, having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Crown on his head because he's the king's sickle because he's reaping the harvest. All right? Another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come because the harvest of the land is ripe. So here we see King Jesus, verse 14, says one like the Son of Man, right? <clears throat> and then we see another angel come out of the temple. Now that's very interesting because you, because even in the Old Testament, you guys remember when Solomon built the temple for the Lord and on the day they dedicated it to the Lord, it says the cloud of the glory of God filled that place. And the priests couldn't stand, and they could—they were drunk on God's glory. I mean, it was glorious, right? But then you lay, way later on, you get over to like Ezekiel, and Ezekiel saw the glory cloud departing and leaving the temple. The temple. <laughs> well, yeah, I don't mean firsthand remember it, Kathy. You know, but you know what I'm, you know. If you're familiar with these events in Scripture, but here I think you see you see the angel. It says coming out of the temple. So we see leaving, you know, this this type this picture here of leaving the temple. But then this messenger, this angel, tells Jesus, "The harvest is ripe. Go ahead, King. It all belongs to you. Reap your harvest." Right? Then it says, uh, "Then he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle over the land, and the land was reaped." And another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven. And he had a sharp sickle, verse 18. And then another angel, the one who has power over fire, came out from the altar. And he called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Put in your sharp sickle, I know this gets real wordy, but, and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, or the land, the land of Israel, in the Greek, because her grapes are ripe. So we just see this theme, reap the harvest. So the angel, or the messenger, swung his sickle to the, the earth of the land and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth 
through them unto the, uh, the great wine press and the wrath of God. Now, now I want to show you something really interesting here. Stay with me. I'm about to wrap up here. The wine press was trodden outside the city. Oh, sorry, verse 20. The wine press of the wrath of God was trodden where? Outside the city. And blood came out of the wine press up to the horse's uh, bridles. And I don't know what your translations say in verse 20. Uh, up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. Is that what you says? Anyone? 180 miles. 180 miles? Yeah. Anyone? A furlong. A furlong. Yeah. Uh, in the, in the Greek, it's uh, okay, one thousand six hundred. In the Greek, it's sixteen hundred stadia or stadia. Everybody say, I think it's stadia. Sixteen hundred stadia, and a stadia is six hundred feet. So sixteen hundred stadia. A stadia is six hundred feet. A lot of bloodshed. Let's just put it that way. What's that? Thank you. There you go. So a lot, of, a lot of stuff going on here. Now, um, and we, that, you know, we looked at a place earlier in the book of Revelation where it's translated as 200 million, and the, uh, the literal translation is just thousands upon thousands. You know, so I don't, you know, whatever. Um, but it, notice it's outside of the city. And we understand in many places when Jesus talked about hell or hellfire, it depends on which word is being used. Uh, in the New Testament, the two primary words that are translated, depending on your translation, uh, the word hell is from the Greek word Gehenna or the Greek word Hades or Hades. Hades is the one you think of as the, the underworld hell. The, the Old Testament Hebrew equivalent was Sheol or Sheol, right? Gehenna, and, and it's, we need to understand this, Gehenna is not the afterworld hell. Gehenna was a literal dump outside the city. And this is where corpses were thrown. This was, and it was burning. This is where the worm dieth not. All this type of stuff. To the book of Jeremiah, it's referenced many times in the book of Jeremiah. Sometimes it's translated the valley of, in Jeremiah, the valley of Hinnom or Hinnom. Or the Ben Hinnom. Hinnom, Hinnom, however you say it, or the Ben, the son of Hinnom or Hinnom. And so it was a literal place, right? Out just outside of the city, and, and uh, it was not the place you wanted to be. But Jesus very often would prophesy to them, uh, you know, uh, pluck out your eye, cut off your hand, spiritually speaking here, don't go do that. Uh, he said, you know, because it's better for you to uh, take, take, take off or cut off that which is binding you and deceiving you from the truth than it is to believe the lie which will eventually result in you being thrown into Gehenna fire which was the destruction of Jerusalem hell fire, should be, really shouldn't be translated hell, I guess it was a kind of hell on earth, you know Gehenna and that's where so much of this was happened now that's not to say there isn't Hades or Hades hell that's, that's just, we need to understand that though and we're big kids, we can say things like this and understand that, correct? Uh, it's important to understand these things. Now, in closing, uh, just jump over to the next chapter here, and I'll wrap up here. I just want to show you something to uh, get through this here. Verse 1. Now, this is interesting. Please pay attention. Revelation 15.1. Check this out. He said, Then I saw another sign in heaven, said, Great and marvelous, seven angels who had seven plagues, 
which are the last, because in them, in these seven plagues, what? The wrath of God is finished. Right? So the wrath of God was not finished on the cross. Technically, the, the cross was not the wrath of God. There was no wrath of God, per se, on the cross. All right? Jesus didn't die to take God's wrath. He died to take our sin. Does that make sense? God wasn't our problem. Sin was the monkey on our back. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the wrath of God. No, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So the wrath of God was finished in this, not in the cross. Now, you'll never see the word wrath. Do a word search on the word wrath in the New Testament. You'll literally never see a time where wrath is even close to being connected to the cross. They're never put together. The cross wasn't the wrath of God. It was the sin of man that Jesus died for. He says, I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire. Those who had been victorious over the beast in his image and the number of his name standing on the sea of glass holding these harps of God. And they sang the song of Moses. We mentioned that a minute ago. They sang the song of Moses because, remember, when they come into the promised land, end of Deuteronomy, beginning of Joshua, they sing the song of Moses to come into the promised land. Well, now they're singing the song of Moses to exit the old covenant promised land because it's being destroyed and to enter into the new heavenly city, the new covenant people of God. The, 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 I don't know how say, the new Jerusalem, as I say, is not a place. It's a people. We're, we are the city of God. And the scripture literally, Jesus said, you are a city set on a hill, right? So we understand that. Uh, bond servant of God uh, and the song of the Lamb say, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God, the Almighty, righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all the nations, all the nations will come and worship you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. Uh, and after I looked, uh, after these things I looked, and the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. This is incredible. We're getting behind the scenes we actually had scripture telling us when the heavenly tabernacle was finally opened unto man the true holy place the true heavenly holy of holies which hebrews 9 talks about and says that the heavenly tabernacle cannot be opened while the earthly tabernacle still stands but it's destroyed and now it's opened up to the people of god right so uh and the seven angels who had the seven plagues came out of the temple, cold in linen, clean and bright, girded around their chest in golden sashes. Uh, one of the four living creatures gave to the, uh, the seven angels seven bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. Last verse, the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Now he's drawing back there to uh, whenever Solomon dedicated the temple to the Lord, and the glory of the Lord filled the place, and the priest couldn't stand, and he's drawing on that symbolism and imagery here. Uh, but this time, we're seeing a different kind of glory. And I think this might speak historically to the fact that uh, the, the Caesar at the time did not want the temple to be destroyed. It was considered what we would call one of the wonders of the world. And even Titus, the general, told his soldiers, take the stuff out of the temple, but don't destroy the temple. They had orders not to do that 
and they did anyways. And uh, Josephus actually writes about it, and he says it was basically like a demonic uh, thing just swept over them and overtook them, and they couldn't help but to disobey their, their commander's orders, and they destroyed the temple anyways and took all the gold, because there was even gold inside of the bricks, so they would get the bricks and even the foundation stones. They dig them up, open them up, there's gold inside of them. So they had orders not to do it, and I think we're seeing this right here. We're seeing here that even though even the very Roman general, commander of all the armies said, don't destroy the temple to his people, that it happened anyways by divine decree, and nothing could stop it from happening. And we see here, the glory entered, and no man could do it until the glory departed. So I didn't think we'd get through all of that, and uh, we did, and we're almost finished. So, all right. The Glory Center would like to thank you for listening to this podcast. We hope that it is encouraged and ministered to you. We also would like to invite you to check out our website at glorycenter.org.